All right, Genesis chapter 11, verse 26 through chapter 12, verse 5. And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haram. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Ishkah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abraham's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, and they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarah, Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother-in-law, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, again, we are thankful that we might have thy word and indeed have thy spirit as well to understand it. We pray thee, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, supply these truths to them so that we might look to and lean upon thee for everything. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, So I first want to give a general introduction in terms of what we um, see here in the book of Genesis so that we can get more out of it because there's a lot of interesting things here, not just in the specific the specifics what's hap- that happens to the individuals here, but also big picture, general picture things. There are in the book of Genesis six prominent people set before us, which would be Adam, Noah, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And I want you to consider each person individually, because each person individually represents things that you would experience in your Christian walk. You also have in them When you line them all up, you have the Christian experience as well, when you put them one after another. In Adam, we see the fall, and that we would see in our own lives in terms of the revelation of sin. When the Holy Spirit comes to us and lets us know what our character and nature truly is, and we can appreciate that we are, in fact, sinners, then we can look forward to regeneration, which is what Noah represents. Abraham represents the walk of faith, somebody that trusts God and is drawn by God and follows God, but not understanding or knowing where they are going to go, but they get up and they go. Isaac represents sonship. We're going to find that he dwells by the wells and partakes of the things and the gifts of the Lord until such time as Jacob comes on the scene who represents service. We know that uh, Jacob worked 14 years for his two wives, and he worked for Laban for quite a period of time. Um, In Joseph, we see humiliation and then exaltation. So when you put all of those together, that is the Christian walk, the revelation of sin, then regeneration, 
then there's the walk of faith, and then there's this hope that we have in Christ, our sonship with him, while we come to church and we feed upon things. And then, of course, we move into uh, service, and then uh, eventually we're going to know humiliation and exaltation when the Lord brings us to glory. A couple of lessons here that I would have us to appreciate is that as a new Christian, when you were walking just after this walk of faith, where you were um, residing in this period of sonship, it's good to sit quietly in a church and listen, drink from the well, and learn and grow in Christ before you go into service. Because if you go into service too soon, you're just going to make a mess of things. The world is full of missionaries that don't really know the gospel and that are spreading false gospels and really making trouble and a mess of things. And let me share this with you. This is a trick of churches to keep people uh, in them is that they plug them into ministry very quickly, much quicker than they should plug them into ministry. And so uh, Arthur Pink, as a matter of fact, wrote a... um, booklet called The Snare of Service. It's a common ploy and trick of churches that they suck people into ministries to keep them there. And beware that you don't get sucked into ministry uh, too soon. You need to know what you're doing and you need to have a real appreciation of what the gospel is and who Christ is and how he wants you to serve him. So you need to be in there long enough before you can appreciate what your gifts might be and therefore you would know how you're to serve the Lord. Uh, There are some who say that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob represent faith hope, and charity. And charity, of course, is love in action, the manifestation of love as it works itself out in your ministry. So again, these six people represent the composite walk of the Christian life, Christian growth. And so um, we will see in each of these individuals, and we already have with respect to Adam and Noah, we've seen type of how they represent in different ways a type of Christ. So we're going to learn more about Christ as we look at their lives individually as well. Um, The Lord says in Psalm 40.7 that I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. So everything ultimately is teaching us about Christ. He comes in the volume of the book, and certainly the book of Genesis is part of the volume of the book. So we would expect to see Christ in Genesis, and we will see him all over the pages of Genesis. He says, I come to do thy will. So I want us to appreciate that as Christians, God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's not enough that we just do it, but he gives us a heart and a desire to have the will to do the things that he wants us uh, to do. And so we always find, as I've mentioned, the tension in Scripture is between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And so he tells us what things we should do, therefore we have an obligation to obey him and go out and do those things. But thankfully, he gives us a heart that we would desire to do those things. So oftentimes we find ourselves wanting to do the things that heretofore we did not want to do, and that's the grace of God working in our hearts. But of a truth, we don't know whose will it is. We want to do it, so we think it's of ourselves, but of a truth, it's, uh, it's God working in us. Now, it's difficult for us to separate what is God's will and what is my will because he's given me a heart to do it, so I think that it is my will. Um, but I know that if I'm willing doing something that is in service to God, that I know it really comes from him, although he has given me a heart to love him, and therefore I would want to do those things. And so what I've come to do just over the years is, I quite frankly, I let that go. And I just go, you know, if it's good, I know it's from God. I know it's Christ working in me. It's works that he has prepared before, good works that he has ordained that I should walk in. If it's a mess, if it's bad, I know that's me. (laughs) 
So that's why I just leave it there and, and I don't need to worry about that so much. If it's good, if it's productive, if it's charitable, I know it's Christ in me. So um, as Christians grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, if they stay in the scripture, um, they will indeed grow in those things. And then again is that tension between responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God because we have to stay in the word and we need to stay on our knees so we would appreciate what things the Lord is teaching us here. And as we go through the Christian walk, we will walk less by sight and more by faith. And you're going to see that into the individuals in the scripture that the Lord sets before us. They will, as they grow in Christ, as they grow in their Christian experience and in their relationship with the Lord, they will walk more by faith. They will lean less and less, as we should, on their own understanding and more and more in simply trusting in the Lord and that he has what is ever best for them. And the scripture tells us that, but we have to experience it before we truly appreciate it, even though he impresses that truth upon our heart in a doctrinal sense. Nevertheless, we have to experience it. Um, at some point, we want to be able to say, um, knowing it to be true, experiencing it to be true, that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as Christians, as we move forward in Genesis, we're going to want to appreciate the difficulties that these individuals experienced in their Christian walk. And again, how they'll trust more and more on the Lord. We are going to see the Lord working in the background of these individuals, just like I hope, as I had mentioned earlier, at some point you can look backwards in your life and see how he has orchestrated a number of events for your good and his glory that would draw you closer to him. So God has placed these individuals in the Bible and recorded certain events in their lives. Surely more things happen to them, but he has recorded certain things in their lives that we would come to appreciate um, what it means to be in a pilgrimage with the Lord and to ever have our hope fixed on Christ. In Romans 15:4, the Lord says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, which would be the book of Genesis, whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning. God has told us, I've put these things here for you so that you would learn from them that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now, I hope you're comforted in the Scriptures when you read them, when you read about the things that Abraham does, when you read about the things, the foolish things that David did, and yet how these individuals get to glory in spite of themselves because their hope and faith and trust is in Christ. And so as it is for them, so it shall be for us. Now, I want us to appreciate, I'm simply telling you that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob um, are in glory because the Lord says that they're in glory. Recall when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says that he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, not the God of the dead but the God of the living. So we would appreciate that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are very much alive and they are in glory with God, just as Moses and Elijah are because they were up on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord. All of that before the cross, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And these individuals are with the Lord. So the Lord is teaching us that not only is he their God, is their present tense, uh, they are yet living. They have eternal life and fellowship with God through Christ. Now, 
As we move through Genesis and we look at their lives, it will be painfully obvious to us that they did not achieve this glory. They didn't get there. They didn't get into the land of, of the promised land. They didn't reach the promises of God by any means other than the grace of God. There was nothing meritorious in themselves. What promises they received from God, which indeed we get all of the promises from God, they received them by virtue of the grace of God. That if they had not been elect according to the foreknowledge of God and kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, if they had not been elect and kept, they would be dead in their trespasses and sins and walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, just like everybody else before God calls them and quickens them and leads them to himself. What's true for them is true for you and me. No difference. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. If we're going to get to glory, and um, it is only by God's grace, he has to keep us. And the Lord says that in, in, you know, in simple language in the first Peter, uh, the, the doctrinal truth about how he preserves his saints, but we're going to see it ex experienced in the lives of these individuals. And so our narrative opens again, like so many other of these narratives have opened, with man steeped in idolatry. It opens with man steeped in idolatry. And this is a pattern that you're going to see throughout the entire Bible, just as in Genesis chapter 1. And the Lord says, and it was evening, darkness, and it was morning, light, the first day. That's the pattern throughout Scripture. It is darkness, and then light comes on, and then we move into another phase. We had that with respect to Adam. Adam fell, and then who do we see? We see Abel come out of that. Then the line degenerates into idolatry, and who comes out of that? Noah comes out of that. It degenerates into idolatry again, and then comes Abram, who is light. And then we say the same thing with respect to Moses in Egypt. They have descended into idolatry. And then we're going to see it again with Joshua. And then you're going to see it all the way up to Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, 16, the Lord says that the people who have sat in darkness, and he's quoting from Isaiah, have seen a great light. Them that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, a light has come upon them. And the light we have now, we're in a, as a Christian, we're in a period of, of light, uh, having been um, illuminated by Christ and translated from the kingdoms of darkness into light. That, light. that is where we reside. And so our narrative here opens in Genesis 11 and 12 with the line of Shem, who you'll notice they produce sons and daughters, and so the Lord has given us the spiritual reality that they are uh, going to bear fruit by virtue of their relationship with Christ. But we see that they descend into uh, idolatry. Now, what's particularly grievous, I think, and I mentioned this before about this line, is that they have descended into idolatry, and while Terah, Abram's father, is practicing idolatry, Noah and Shem, who have witnessed and experienced God's judgment over the whole earth, are still alive. All Terah's got to do is have a conversation with them, and they would tell him everything that befell the world and why it happened, and yet Terah is in darkness in uh, southern Babylon. 
Now, our deacon read for us uh, Joshua chapter 24, and so I want to take a look at that to affirm and that we would appreciate about them walking in idolatry. Um, you would think that this would be the end of idolatry with respect to the line of Christ, but the answer is no. It's not the end of idolatry. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, Joshua is, is speaking to the people, and he says, Now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth, because they have not been serving him in sincerity and truth, but he's telling them to do that, and put away the gods, plural, which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, meaning before he brought them out of Egypt, um, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. Verse 23, he says, after making his spiel. Now, therefore, because you haven't done it yet, put away, he said, the strange gods which are among you. Um, what I want you to appreciate from this is there are those that claim that while the Israelites were in Egypt, they cried out to the Lord because they had a relationship with him and you know, desired the growth of that relationship. But the fact is that's simply not true. They cried out to the Lord because of their taskmasters. That's what the scripture says. They cried out because of their taskmasters. They were idolaters while they were in, in Egypt. They were idolaters when they wandered in the wilderness. They were idolaters during the conquest of the land of Canaan. And as he's speaking to them, they are idolaters right now when he is talking to them. They served other gods during all of that period of time. It is only by the briefest of exceptions that they ever were not idolaters and that they uh, otherwise continued in idolatry. Um, now, I want to take just uh, a sidestep here for a minute because I want you to appreciate Joshua 24, verse 15, because this is where the young Christian stands up and feels some sense of import and righteousness. In Joshua 15, 24, the very end, Joshua says, But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. So it makes it sound there, when you look at that, as though Joshua is making a statement about himself that, yeah, by my uh, affirmation and by my declaration, we're going to serve the Lord. But we can't get the cart in front of the horse here. Who chose Joshua? Where did Joshua come from? Well, in Numbers chapter 27, verse 18 in particular, and I'll, I'll read a little bit there because I want us to appreciate that it was God that chose Joshua. In Numbers 27, we'll pick it up in verse 15. And Moses spake unto the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. So Moses is saying, Hey, I want you to choose somebody here to set over the congregation, which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, and which may lead them out, and which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take thee Joshua. God's choosing Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay thy hand upon him. So I want us to appreciate that God is the one who chose Joshua, not the other way around. Remember in John chapter 15, verse 16, the Lord speaking to his disciples, he says very clearly, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. I've chosen you, and I've given you something to do, and ordained you that you should go forth and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. So God said, no, you didn't choose me. 
I chose you. So really what we're seeing in Joshua 24 is simply a statement of what we read in 1 John 4.19 where it says, We loved him because he first loved us. I chose God because he chose me. That's what Joshua is really saying. So we should appreciate that the Israelites, all the way beginning with Abraham, were steeped in idolatry from the very beginning. And so, as the scripture says, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God, they are all gone out of the way. Abraham... Moses, Joshua, just like you and me, have all gone out of the way, but nevertheless we are elect and chosen of God. And so we walked in darkness until such time as God called us out of Ur of the Chaldees. Like a brand plucked out of the fire did God choose us. Not a coincidence, the word Ur means fire. And so Abram was taken out as a brand from fire from the land of Babylon which is confusion. And that's where we all started. We're all over in Babylon like a brand plucked out of the fire. The Lord removed us from that. And so God, who is rich in mercy, did for us just what he did for Abram. When we were idolaters, he called us unto himself. Now, it's important that we appreciate what work God did in Abraham's life. If you flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. It says that he obeyed. In Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive not for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in an estranged country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's wonderful. That's the kind of thing I want on my tombstone. I'll be in the dirt under the ground, and this is all people will see of my messy life. They'll just see this wonderful What He was a great man of faith. You know, and that's what people do with Abraham. They lift him up, and they... Um, Accord him as a great man of faith. And that's why it's good to read Genesis so we can appreciate what life was really like. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 3, we should appreciate that the Lord says there, I, God, took your father Abraham, Abraham from the other side of the flood, that would be the Red Sea, and led him throughout all of the land of Canaan. God says, no, 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 no. It was me. I took him and I led him. In uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7, the Lord says, Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abraham and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gavest him the name of Abraham. So we appreciate what we read in Hebrews 11, that Abraham obeyed and Abraham walked you know, from Babylon over into uh, the promised land. But it was God who took him and God who brought him into the promised land. So if you read Hebrews 11, you're like, oh, what an icon of faith. You read other places in the Bible and I'll tell you what, it's like God put a hook in his mouth and dragged his behind out of confusion and brought him into the light. And that's what he does to all of us. Now, in Acts chapter 7, verse uh, 2 through four, we get a few more details. Acts chapter two, uh, Acts chapter seven, 
Acts chapter 7. I'll pick it up actually in verse 1. This is Stephen is speaking to the high priests and the people that are in front of him, and he's going to give them a history of um, Israel. Then said the high priest, are these things so, the things that have been said about Stephen? And Stephen starts his spiel, and he says, Men and brethren and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. So he's given us the detail that God actually came to Abraham while he was dwelling in between the Tigris and Euphrates River in Babylon. And said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead... He removed him, that would be God, removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. So we could pick up some details here about, well, when did God appear to him? Well, when he was in Mesopotamia. What did God tell him to do? He lists actually two out of three things that God actually told him to do. But he wants us to understand that he stayed in Haran until such time as his father died. So we need to pay attention to that. Um, So when God called him, as is true with everybody, there is a separation that must needs take place. You must separate yourself from the world. God is calling Abraham out of the world. You've got to separate yourself from the world and its ways. You've got to separate yourself, at least, you know, I'm talking spiritually and emotionally and in terms of uh, where your heart is, your affections are. You've got to remove itself from the influences and the attractions of the world. You know, we call that sanctification. Positionally, we've been sanctified, separated under Christ from before the foundation of the world, but positionally, experientially, this is a process we go through as we turn our our eyes off of the things of this world and turn them unto the Lord and start being more heavenly-minded in the way we uh, view things. Um, The Lord says to us in James 4.4 that friendship of the world is enmity with God. So he's telling us to, if you're a friend of the world, then you are God's um, enemy. He also says in that same section, he refers to the people that he's addressing the letter to. He says, you are adulterers and adulteresses. Well, why would he call them that? Well, because they're they're friends with the world. They're having a, a, a relationship with the world that they should not be having. Their relationship should be exclusively with Christ. And the Lord tells us of a truth that if you're in love of the world, then the love of God is not in you. That's 1 John Chapter 2, verse 15, that if you're in the world and you're loving the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. So in verse 3 of Acts chapter 7, we see that he's told to get out from his kindred. And this is a little bit more difficult part as it is for all of us. We all struggle with this part. Um, There are those in our family who don't know what it means to be called of God. They don't understand it at all. It's a spiritual issue. They They don't get it. And they would endeavor to hold you back. And we're going to see that. Uh, with respect to Rebecca's life and with respect to Jacob's life. In both cases, Laban is the one who's trying to pull them back. Laban would represent the flesh in that context. But there are th- there are your family, your kindred, your flesh wants to hold you back. And you've probably seen this in your own life with respect to your kindred. They've got lots of questions about what you believe and the things that you're doing and, and why are you doing it. And it seems like they're asking for the benefit of themselves, for personal edification, like, well, maybe I'll do that too. But what they're really doing is they're trying to undermine your faith and to hold you back. And that's the way the world wants. The world wants to claw you back and keep you from leaving it because, quite frankly, when you do so, you're passing judgment 
on the world. Not in a spiritual sense. You're not going to. Con you're not condemning the world, but they're they're beginning to view you as a vexation because you were. Um, you're removing yourself from it is a comment that it's not that the world is not to be esteemed the things of the earth are not to be valued that it's all vanity and so you're leaving that and then they're going to have to think about why you see things that way and it's it's a it's a conviction is the word I and mean. it's a conviction to them um so they ask all sorts of questions and they're really trying to claw you back trying to hold you back so the christian walk first begins with the call and then the separation and then it moves on to perfection. So we see in verse 4 here of Acts chapter 7 that Abraham, Abraham gets as far as Haran, where he remains until his father dies. And so I want us to appreciate that this process of separation is not as easy as it would seem. Now, back in Genesis chapter 12, we read of the three things God told Abraham or Abram to do. In verse 1, he told him to... Get out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house. And that when we get down to verse 5, we see that, well, he hadn't really left everything behind. In verse 5, it says, And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and their substance that they had gathered, and all the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they so you see that they actually haven't left everything behind. And so it is with us. We bring a lot of baggage with us once the Lord draws us unto himself. And so we should appreciate what we see here, and it's kind of glossed over in the book of Hebrews, is that though Abraham obeyed, he didn't obey completely. He didn't obey wholly. So again, we're beginning to see the true Christian walk. This is the way it is for us too. When... He uh, leaves Ur, he attempts to take his father with him. He's taking his, some of his kindred with him, and he takes his father's house with him. And so we should appreciate that with respect to the Christian walk, as long as the old man lives in us, we will never get to glory. As long as you've got the old man with you, you're not going to get to glory. And Romans 6, 6 tells us that the old man is crucified with Christ. The old man has got to die. It is when the old man is dead that we might see what things God would show us. For the natural man, in context here is the old man, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. This is all 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Scripture tells us that I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. So, again, Hebrews 11.8 tells us that Abraham without, went out not knowing whither he went. He doesn't understand all of the things that are, are waiting for him. He doesn't see them yet. And so it was with us. When God first called us, we didn't know where we were going. We didn't know what wonderful things the Lord hath prepared for us. Only that we were willing to go, and, uh, and so we did. And as is typical, and this is one of the things that's um, interesting in Scripture, is that Scripture says here in Hebrews 11, excuse me, in Genesis 11, that it was Terah who took Abram to Haran, and not, Ab not the other way around. So what we, the Lord, I think, wants us to appreciate here is that once we're first called of the Lord, we typically move forward in the strength of the flesh. It's the old man that begins the, the, the journey in its strength, 
And as we move forward in the Christian walk, we've come to learn that, you know, you can't get there from here with the old man, with the flesh. So we see that it's his father who takes him to Haran, and it is not until the old man is dead that he leaves Haran. And so if we can look at that in terms of being born again, the scripture tells us in John 3, 3, that until you're born from above, until you're regenerated, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see it. And the Lord says in verse 5 of John 3 that you cannot enter into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. The old man has to die. And so it is we see that the old man dies here. And then Abram is able to move forward. And then he receives, we see in the order here, first we see the old man die in verse 32 of Genesis 11. Then we receive the promises are received in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And those are four I wills. The Lord says, I will do this, I will do that, and I will do the other thing. Keep that in mind. God says, I will do it. Okay? That doesn't say with your help. doesn't say with your cooperation. He says, I will do it. And so these are gospel principles, because then in Genesis 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 5, then we see he enters into the uh, land of Canaan. Um, so the Lord in, in uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, just puts the high points before us, and that's all I want people to remember of me, is the high points. It's all Christ and Christ in me. And as you recall in Hebrews 11, it says, by faith they did this, by faith they did that, by faith they did the other thing. And as I have shared with you in the past, that faith is a synonym for Christ. You take out the word faith, put in the word Christ, and it makes perfect sense. So in Genesis, we have and see the difficulties associated with the Christian walk. Um, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, you don't have to turn there, I'm just referring to it. God tells us that he preached the gospel to Abraham in verse 3 here. He's telling us that verse 3, God preached the gospel to Abraham. Um, saying, this is what he refers to in Galatians 3.8, In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Up in verse 2, God said, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I want us to appreciate that he's referring specifically to Abraham. All those people around you, I'm talking to you personally. God calls each person individually, and you see that in the Gospels when he calls the disciples by name. He's with them. He says, I, you, you, and you are coming with me, and that's what the Lord does with us. He saw the same thing with respect to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. He was amongst, uh, amongst a bunch of other people, but he called Paul in particular and Paul was the only one who heard and heeded and understood and appreciated the call was for him. All those other people, some places it says they saw the light, other places it says they heard a voice, but nobody heard the call directed to them specifically as did the apostle Paul, then called Saul. This is to Abraham personally and particularly. So God says, I will do this and I will do that and I will do the other thing in your life. So at the age of, of 75, Abraham receives the promises of an offspring. God says, I will make of you a great nation. But he didn't appreciate it. He didn't understand what it meant. And that's why it's important for us as Christians to understand some very basic terms in the Bible. Some very basic things bear on us. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, A man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, 
and they shall be one flesh. Back in Genesis 11 here, how does the scripture refer to Sarah? It refers to Sarah as the wife of Abram. It does that twice. In uh, verse 31, it also refers to Sarah as his daughter-in-law. Fact is, it's also his daughter. Sarah is the daughter of Terah. But she's his daughter-in-law. That's the context that's put before us here because she's married to Abram. That is the overriding um, principle. That is the overriding relationship with respect to Terah is that it's, she is now belongs to another man. She is one flesh with that other man. So Abram, now having left his father, he's certainly one flesh with Sarah. Just Sarai, just like it says in Genesis chapter 2. He's left his father and his mother, he's clave to his wife, they're one flesh. So, if he's one flesh with Sarah, the promise made to Abram to make him a great nation, and that in him all of the families of the earth would be blessed, includes Sarah, his wife. Sarai, his wife. She is part of this promise too. God would certainly honor the institution of marriage that he set up. Now, if Abram had understood this basic truth, political life on this planet would be very different than it is today. Had Abraham understood this, he would have not lain with Hagar, the Egyptian, and there would be no Ishmaelites. Had he truly believed God, the famine in verse 10 we see here of Genesis 12 would not have caused him to go down into Egypt because he would know he's not going to starve if God's promise is going to be filled. And it was in Egypt where he picked up Hagar in the first place. And so that is true with us as well. If we would but take God at face value, just take him at the word that he says and believe him, we would avoid a lot of hurt, a lot of personal hurt. Now, well, Abraham's doubts and misunderstanding caused quite a bit of trouble and personal grief in his own life. He was wholly ignorant of the 4,000 years of trouble that have fallen out from it. And this is a very sobering thought. We have no idea what downstream troubles our sins cause. You know, you push the snowball off the top of the hill and you're like, well, that's gone. It causes nothing but trouble all the way down to the bottom. God knows this, and he does say that he gives men, when he judges them, according to the fruit of their doing. Not just for the sin that you've committed here, but the fruits, all of the ancillary and secondary um, collateral damage. God holds you responsible for that. For Abraham's sake, thank God, <laughs> God's mercy and grace was on him. So... Abraham had no idea of the 4,000 years of trouble that one act of adultery instigated by his wife has caused for millions of people. All the grief and misery that have been caused by that one sin is just staggering. So, let us learn from these lives of these people God has set before us in Scripture here. And never forget that no matter how ready their lives were as God's elect, Nothing could separate them from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, not even yourself. They all got to glory by God's grace, and so shall all of God's elect.
He will keep us and he will preserve us and we will enter into a into glory, into an inheritance which has been reserved for us. So God has placed these things in the scriptures for us that we might have hope in Christ and rest in him. Amen.